we are, as a community, at this inflection point where, look, a lot has happened. We've been through a lot since COVID and everything. Uh, you know, we were shut down for a long, long time in terms of in-person worship. And we're back in in-person worship and all that, but we still got a lot of disruptions happening. And disruptions can be great. It can be opportunities to reevaluate and change course when necessary. And that's what we're doing as we think about everything going on. One of the biggest things we're facing, aside from the pandemic, is just locally here, figuring out where we're gonna be January 1 of 2022. We still don't know, all right? We just know it's not gonna be here. After six and a half beautiful years of ministry partnership with, uh, with St. Luke's, uh, the church that gave us birth, uh, it's time for the story to, to fly the nest and spread our wings a little. So we're looking for a new home, and, and as of January 1, we'll be in some new place, somewhere that God has in store for us. Any day now, God, would be nice if you would tell me. That'd be great. So, uh, so we've got all these disruptions, all these changes and challenges. This is the perfect time to ask the big questions. What are we, what are we doing here? What kind of church do we want to become? And more importantly, what kind of church is God calling us to become? Because not every church is the same. I mean, I, I guess big picture, we're all on the same team and, and we're all related in the same kingdom. That's great. But I think every church is given a pretty specific mission for its time and place, its context. And so what is the mission God is giving us and, and how should we leave some of the things we're doing behind and hold on to some of the other things that we should keep doing? So we're looking at a few practices that some of our leaders have uh, have identified as core practices, things that really give the story family its shape. The things that we have done, we want to keep doing. And last week, we talked about the importance of challenging comfort. Y'all, it's so important that we challenge comfort. That even means nudging each other outside of our comfort zones, becoming friends with people you might not normally become friends with, getting out of our silos and our echo chambers and loving people who aren't like us, all these kinds of things, you know, rethinking some of our preconceived assumptions. All these things are so important to the story and always have been, and I hope they always will be. We believe that comfort is like kryptonite to the Christian faith. It just makes you complacent and lazy. It makes you stop asking big questions. That's not what we're about here. So we're going to keep challenging comfort. Next week, we're going to talk about the other core practice that I think is pretty evident in our, in our culture at the story, which is pursuing truth. We, we've got a reputation a little bit about being a church that's um, pretty heavy on the pursuit of truth, on, on apologetics, as it were, like the explanation of the Christian faith and defending the Christian faith uh, against other kinds of worldviews or, or, or contradicting uh, worldviews and world religions. And so uh, that's always been a part of who we are, and we're going to talk more about that next week. Today, we've got, we've got to talk about a core practice that I think has always been there. It's always been important. It will continue to be important, but we don't talk about it that much. But we should. We should, we should highlight this because this is where real change happens in people's lives. And this is our commitment to inspiring deeper conversations. Inspiring deeper conversations is something we've always tried to do and it's something we must continue to keep doing. So what this means is that everything that we plan, every event, every worship service, every sermon, every Maybe God podcast episode, every meeting of the foundations class for middle and high schoolers, which starts next Sunday afternoon, by the way. Uh, middle and high schoolers and parents, get ready. Foundations is an awesome way to see transformation in your kids' lives. Look, every small group, every discipleship group, all of it is in part um, planned in such a way to evoke deeper conversations on the way home. So, this is a monologue here, right? And this is, this is okay. 
But what really gets me excited is trying to get you to have a conversation on the way home that has more to do with God than it does with, you know, uh, Mia's or, or should we go to Papacitas today? Like, where, where should we go? And like, like, I want us to be thinking about and talking about deeper things with our families, with our spouses, our friends, and with one another. So, so as much as we can inspire that, uh, that's what we are going for, all right? We're trying to inspire deeper conversations. Now, to be clear, disclaimer, what it doesn't mean is we all have to become weird, okay? I don't want us to all become a bunch of weirdos like we all have that guy in our life, the deep conversation guy, who has a deep, he, he will have a deep conversation with you, whether it's appropriate or not. <laughs> he is going there, whether you're you know, ready for it or not, you're at an Astros game together, middle of the second inning, you know, at Minute Maid, and, and, and he's like, tell me all your thoughts on uh, the death penalty. What do you think? And you're like, bro, I just, wanna, I just wanna watch the game. We all know that guy. I'm not saying you have to be that guy. There's room for small talk. There's always space for casual conversations, but I am saying that we should have more conversations that go deeper. As we grow in faith, the more we fall in love with God, the more deep conversations we should be having. Whenever there's an opening, we should take it. Whenever there's an opening in a conversation with someone we love, we should take it and not just avoid it because we're afraid of where it might go or we're afraid we're not prepared to go there. If you trust the Holy Spirit, you can go there, all right? So how do we have more uh, conversations that really matter? This is sort of the question that is on our minds. What if people talked about God more than the weather? That's a pretty good baseline conversation to have. What if we talked about God more than the weather or more than the Astros or more than politics? Like what would change in our relationships and in the lives of people that we care about, okay? Now, the reason this is a part of our culture isn't just because we've seen the results. The reason this is a, a core practice of ours is because of scripture. So the Bible, cover to cover, it's really shocking actually, how much the Bible talks about the importance of words and conversations. Old Testament and new. It's always talking about how important it is to talk about stuff that really matters and how, how we should not waste our words on idle talk or filthy language or, you know, stuff that doesn't matter or gossip. The Bible puts gossip on the same plane of sin as murder. How often have you, have you gossiped? today, <laughs> right? What, what's that conversation going to be like when we get to the pearly gates and they're like, well, how many people did you kill? And you were like, none, haha, where's my ticket? And then, and then he's like, well, tell me who you talked about. Like, tell, tell me how you gossiped. And that, that's going to get awkward pretty quickly because that's way more important to God in scripture than it is to most of us in our day-to-day Lives, whether it's in Proverbs um, like these. These are two Proverbs that I would lift up as examples, two of many. It says, uh, those who guard their mouths and their tongues guard themselves from trouble. Proverbs 18.2 says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing their opinion. Whoa. That was like 3,000 years before social media that, that the, the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, wrote these words. 
A fool doesn't want to understand, just wants to express his opinion. Stepping all over our toes here. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus' brother, James, at the end of the New Testament, is just taking the gloves off. Read what James said about the importance of choosing your words wisely. I'm not going to get into it here. I'll go straight to the source, right? Straight to Jesus. Look at what Jesus said. And this is not an outlier, by the way. This is one time of many that Jesus said something like this. This is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you that people will have to answer on judgment day for every useless word they speak. Yeesh. Then he says, by your words, you'll either be judged innocent or condemned as guilty. Well, that's not very nice at all. Like, what, what happened to salvation by grace through faith? All you have to do is believe the right things and you're saved, right? Who is this guy saying that you'll be saved or not based on the words you say? What does that mean? Well, he's saying it all the time again. This is not one, a one-off. He, 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 he another time said that, you know, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you or what comes out of your mouth that defiles you is another popular thing that he said about talking words. And, and what he's saying isn't that your words can condemn you because of so, you're breaking some legalistic moral code. Like if you say a, a, a four-letter word, you better repent of it before you die because that is a check mark against you and it'll go to hell. That's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying that the language you use, the words you speak, and the conversations you have are indicative of your heart's condition. And what comes out of your mouth is coming from your heart. And the emptier the words are, the emptier your heart is. Or the angrier your words are, the angrier your heart is. Or the more loving your words are, the, love, the more loving your heart is. And we can all attest to this. The, the closer we get to God, the more naturally his love just overflows from our hearts, out of our mouths, into the lives of others. People can hear the love of God in our words when we are prayed up and ready and in love with God. But when we let that part of our lives go, when we're not, when we're not being disciplined about our life with God, when we're drifting a little bit, we're, we're more easily angered. We're more easily drawn into meaningless um, idle talk or worse, you know, all kinds of things we shouldn't be saying that we're drawn to say because our heart's not healthy. And this is what Jesus is saying about our words. Nevertheless, it's important to us to know that we know that the words you choose in this life truly matter. Now, recently, um, the story's media team got to sit down with a couple that calls the story home. They've been around, uh, it's a young couple, but they've been around the story for a few years now. They're married, they have a new, uh, a new baby, and they've got a story to tell about how God can change the conversation in your home. And both of them talk about how God changed the conversations with their families growing up. And, and in their own hearts, they've seen this kind of transformation. Uh, and I think what the takeaway from their story is that God can change every conversation if we let him. So we're going to show you this story in two parts. I'm going to show you the first part right now. And at the end of the message, we're going to come back and see the last little part of their story that they shared. I'm so grateful to them for sharing this testimony. It took a lot of courage. So let's listen now to the first part of Ryan and Gail's story. Go. Go. Yeah. Good job. All right, let's go. 
we were in high school, so, so sophomore year when we met, and we ran into each other at a dinner um, for our lacrosse team. Was it love at first sight? Far from it. <laughs> yeah, we did not like each other really at all. And then we started to hang out, and we just gradually went from best friends to in a relationship by senior year. We got engaged in January of 2013, and then we were married by February of 2014. Well, Olivia was born in February of 2020. They handed her to me, and it was just the sweetest moment. She has a little angel on her nightstand, and we talk about, we say, let's go talk to the guardian angel. And so we pray every morning to um, the guardian angel to just give her a little bit of kind of flavor into praying every day. It's not as though you guys have just been these devoted Christians your whole lives. Would you say that's the case? No. <laughs> Far from it. If you would have told me you know, even five years ago, that I would be volunteering at church, going to church, and then staying after to work with a small group, you just, I would have said, you're crazy. Ryan's faith five years ago was probably non-existent. There was no talk about God. We didn't go to church. He just was very, like, closed off about faith and probably a little cynical about things, too. We were raised Catholic. Uh, me, my brother, and my sister, we'd go to church with my parents. I would, my dad would give me his watch, basically, because I'd ask him so many times, you know, when's this going to be over? When's this going to be over? Like, I want to get out of here. There was no talk of, you know, the church or anything like that throughout the week. There was no talk about God. Growing up, um, I didn't go to church when I was really, really young. And then the day that we were celebrating my 11th birthday, my dad was in a terrible car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver sideways. Later on, we found out that he was at the hospital, but they said that he had already died twice and was brought back with CPR. Um, and when we saw him, after the car accident, the one thing that he told us was that that he was sitting on the curb watching them take him out of the car. And he was sitting on the curb with God. And he was talking to God and he was saying that he didn't have the stuff ready for to leave his family. My sister was only one years old, my brother was seven, and my other brother was 19. And so God told him, I'm gonna give you some time to get things straightened out before you come home. And, and we thought it was kind of, you know, like, wow, that's crazy. But then it transformed his whole life. And the second we got out of the hospital, he was like, we're going to church. It just changed everything after that. Like our lives changed forever. I mean, everything we talked about revolved around God. Like all he cared about at that point was our relationships with God. And then a year and eight months later, he ended up passing away from a massive heart attack from complications from the car accident. But... It was just, it was crazy because he always told us that he felt like he was on borrowed time to get things straightened out. And I feel like the one thing that God really wanted him to get straightened out was that so we could know who he was.
So I, I really want to thank Ryan and Gail again for sharing um, their story, and we'll hear the, the latter part of it in a moment. But if you listen to both of them, they both said similar things about the past growing up. Um, slightly different stories, but similar in that there were religious themes to their upbringing, but, but it wasn't a part of their lives every day. It wasn't uh, woven into every day, and especially not in terms of what was talked about at home. Ryan said, we never talked about God and stuff after church, you know, once he gave that watch back to his dad and went home, it was like, we don't have to talk about this stuff again until next Sunday. And Ryan wasn't throwing his family under the bus there, y'all. That's, that's the overwhelming majority of church-going families. That's how it goes. Most church-going families practice what I call the, the dry-cleaning method with their kids. They drop their dirty kids off at church. It's like, clean them up. I'll come back in an hour, and then we'll be good, you know, until next Sunday. And, uh, and that's just kind of typical, unfortunately. And that's why, at the story, we've made it a commitment to get more about, um, to move to be more about creating disciples, making disciples instead of just members. We don't think it's about membership and just, and just attending. We think it's about becoming disciples who become missionaries and pastors in your own homes and spheres of influence. Because these conversations must carry forward out of the church building and into your cars and homes uh, throughout the week. Now, um, Gail shared a similar story, but, but obviously they had this dramatic experience, right, with the, the death, the near-death experience of her father and uh, the, the accident. But there was something about that that really stuck out to me, and this was it. I, I'm a father like, like, uh, of little ones like he was at the time of the accident. And when he's sitting on the curb, having that out-of-body experience, watching them pull his body from the wreckage, Jesus meets him there. He has a literal, you know, come to Jesus meeting on the curb. And he's like, Jesus, I need more time. I got to get my affairs in order. Remember that part of the conversation? When I heard that the first time, guess where my like father male provider sort of brain went? Finances and uh, uh, emotional stuff. Like I want to make sure they, they know I love them. I, I got to tell them that I love them. If I'm going to die, I need them to know. And maybe like adventurous stuff, like I want to travel. I got some bucket list stuff to take care of, and maybe I'll work out a life insurance policy if I have more time. You know what I mean? It's like that, those kinds of things would have been on my mind at a certain point in my life. And that's kind of what I thought maybe she was talking about the first time I heard her story, but that wasn't it, was it? Because he realized in that pivotal moment of his life that none of those things matter nearly as much as making sure his wife and kids know God and have a vital and vibrant daily relationship with God. That became his mission the moment after he came home from the hospital. The moment after that experience was over and he was back on his feet again, he took his family to church, Gail said. And every day, she said, every day, all we we ever talked about was God. So that experience might have made Gail's dad a little bit like that guy, right? But he had a good excuse. Like, that's a pretty dramatic experience. And she said, all we ever talked about was God. God changed the conversation in Gail's home. And because he changed her, the conversation her father was having, uh, eventually he changed her life as well. That's just, look, that's just what God does. He changes our hearts and he changes our conversations. And through our conversations with others, he changes others' hearts. That's what he does. If, if you let him. 
Now, the easiest thing in the world is to consider yourself a church member who goes to church and you let God change your heart a little bit at a time, but you keep it to yourself, right? You don't wanna, you don't wanna offend anybody. You don't wanna be weird. You don't wanna rock the boat at home. So you keep talking about all the same stuff, but you, you also try to compartmentalize your faith and, and grow a little bit at a time. It's not how it works with Jesus. He changes you inside out from the heart to your conversations with others. And that's how he reaches others through you as well. Jesus, y'all, if you're not familiar with Jesus yet, that's cool, it's fine, but you need to know he was a master, is. He is a master conversationalist. During his life on earth, he had a a series of these incredible one-on-one conversations. And it wasn't like he was weird or awkward about it. I'm pretty sure Jesus like made a lot of small talk. He was a construction worker. I'm sure he cracked a few jokes. He was giving guys nicknames and stuff all the time. And it's a regular guy, but man, when there was an opening to have a deeper conversation, he took it. And if it, you don't think about this often, but if you could think about all the one-on-one conversations that you do know about Jesus having, there would be a long list if you listed them out. You know, there's like the woman at the well, and uh, there's the woman with the issue of bleeding that uh, had been bleeding for 12 years. That conversation's beautiful. Mary and Martha of Bethany, beautiful conversations with each of those women. Mary Magdalene, a beautiful conversation with her. He had a, an amazing conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Incredible conversation with Zacchaeus, the wee little man. <laughs> and he, he had all kinds of, of life-altering deep conversations. Next week, we'll talk about one that he had with Pontius Pilate, the guy that convicted him to die on a cross. All right, he had a deep conversation with Pontius Pilate before he died. He's always having these conversations. I wanted to share just a little bit about my favorite Jesus talk in all of scripture, okay? And if you've been around the story for a little while, this isn't the first time you'll hear me talk about this, but this is so important to me. I was taught about this conversation the day after I became a Christian in 2013. And it left such an, a mark on my soul. It's so dear to my heart. I talk about it all the time. And if you're, we got a lot of new people. Y'all need to know that this story happened because it will change the conversations you're having with God and subsequently with the people that you care about. So this conversation took place with Simon Peter. Simon Peter is my favorite disciple because I am a lot like him. Simon Peter was a fool. He was <laughs> impulsive. He was always just chattering. Whatever came to mind, Peter said it out loud. And, and you know, he just, it, that's just how he was. I'm sure he was a very lovable guy, but he did a lot of really stupid things. And I can relate to that. Amen. Anyone else? Simon Peter's in the house. Simon was his real name. Peter was a nickname Jesus gave him, meaning, what, was, what did it mean? Rock, thank you. So uh, that is probably the coolest name that your Lord and Savior can give you if you're a guy, right? It's like Rock, holy cow. Some other guy got the twin name and a couple of guys are the Sons of Thunder. That's cool too, but it's nothing like Rock. Rock, he got to be the Rock. Can you imagine the swagger? I came along with Jesus giving you that name. I'm the rock, boys. That's right. Do you smell it? What the rock is cooking? Like, I don't know if he said that, but I imagine him saying that. And just that's, that's the kind of, of, of uh, gravitas Peter thought he had, at least. I'm convinced now that Jesus gave Peter that name slightly tongue-in-cheek. Eventually, Peter came to a point where he was a rock, but there was a period of time where Peter was anything but a rock. Anything but steady, anything but strong. Peter just blew like a reed in the wind. He tried, he tried his best, but he just always fell short. He always failed. 
Now, we, we know that, uh, that the night Jesus was about to be arrested, he told his disciples, hey, all of you guys are about to abandon me, and it's going to be okay. He didn't say it to pile on. He just said, all of you are going to leave me. This is what's going to happen. Just know that I know it's going to happen. It's going to be okay in the end. And of course, Simon Peter's like, look, all these other fools might leave you, but the rock, see, no way. There's no way I'm going to leave you. I'm the rock. You said so. So I'm going to stay by your side no matter what. And Jesus goes almost literally, this is a slight exaggeration. Jesus goes, okay, rock. <laughs> okay, rock. Uh, by morning, when the, the rooster crows for the third time, you will have already denied knowing me. Okay? Three times. By the time the rooster crows, you will already have denied knowing me three times. Three disavowals before sunrise. Simon says, never, Lord. They come and arrest him. Simon cuts a guy's ear off somehow. Uh, I don't know. He's either really good with the sword or really bad with the sword. It's uh, hard to tell. But he cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus heals it. They arrest him. They take him away. Simon Peter follows the, the parade of people to the house where they did his first religious trial under the cover of night. This was a, a sinister sort of political maneuvering. They, they didn't want a lot of people seeing what was happening. So they did Jesus's trial at the high priest's house in the middle of the night. Simon Peter followed them, and he stood in the courtyard of the house while the trial was going on inside the house, and he warmed himself beside a fire while others were there. It was a cold night, I guess. He warmed himself up, and, and as he did, Jesus is being convicted inside, and outside, they're starting to recognize Simon Peter as one of Jesus's guys. Aren't you with that guy? Aren't you one of that guy's men? Aren't you with him? And three different times, because Simon Peter's afraid of facing the same fate that Jesus is inside that house facing, he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know that guy. What guy? Huh? He's like total cowardice around this fire. And then after the third disavowal, the rooster crows, Peter realizes what he's done. He locks eyes with Jesus through a window inside the house, and he begins to weep like a baby. He begins to cry like a little child. And then he runs away from the courtyard. He runs away from the fire. He runs away from Jesus, who he said he would never leave. This was just a few hours after he said, it will never happen, Lord, and it happened. I can't imagine that level of failure at that key of a moment. I, I, I mean, he's the son of God. He's done all these miracles. He's clearly the one. And to leave him in a moment like that, I mean, I'm sure I probably would do the same under those circumstances. I'm not that strong, but I can't imagine what Simon Peter must have experienced. I just know it was a lot emotionally and a lot of shame because there's evidence in the gospels that Simon Peter from that point on for a few days at least decided he wasn't a disciple anymore. There's evidence in the gospels. Simon Peter stopped being a disciple. When the angels announced Jesus's resurrection after his death, they told, the angel told the women to go and tell the disciples and then go tell Peter as if he's not one of the disciples. So Simon Peter, the great Saint Peter, quit because he was such a coward and he couldn't face the Lord again, or so he thought. He quit, but he still kind of hangs out with these same disciples. He's their friend or whatever, and they're trying to stay close to him. And, and in John chapter 21, uh, Peter decides at, the, at sundown, as it's dark outside, Peter said, I'm going fishing. Very clearly, he said, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing alone. You stay here. I'll see you later. That's what shame does. It drives you further apart from the ones who love you and will hold you to account. 
But his boys, these disciples, they, in, a, in a, really an example of true Christian community, they say, we will go with you to fish in the middle of a cold night. We will go with you, even though you're kind of a downer right now, Peter, honestly, but we will go with you. You will not fish alone. Not right now. So they go with him. They fish all night long. And as per usual, they catch nothing. <laughs> they were not very good at their job. And that might have made it easier for them to follow Jesus and leave their nets behind because they weren't doing a very good job of providing with their families. They were always not catching anything. One time early in Jesus's ministry, he saw them not catching anything and he joked with them and said, why don't you try throwing the net on the other side of the boat? And they were like, thanks, Carpenter, we've got it. And then they did it anyway. And they caught all these fish, so many fish, it almost capsized their boat. Well, this night was not like that. They didn't catch anything and they were pulling their boat ashore and they saw this weirdo on the shoreline at dawn building a fire. They couldn't see who it was from a distance, but when he saw that their nets were empty, he made fun of them. And he said, hey boys, why don't you try throwing that net on the other side of this boat of yours? And they freaked out, they lost it. They immediately knew who it was. Keep in mind, this was after the crucifixion. I mean, they had lost their Lord. And the, the rumor was, and some of them had confirmed the rumor that he had raised from the dead, but they were still bewildered and confused. They, they didn't know what all this meant. And so they knew that it was Jesus on the shoreline immediately. And then perhaps we have, I think, the most fascinating, beautiful verse in all of Scripture. Our dear friend, impulsive Simon Peter, it says in John 21 that, that he saw that it was Jesus, so he put his clothes back on for he was fishing naked and he jumped into the water and swam to Jesus. <laughs> and this gets me every time. I just, every time there's so much there. First of all, he's fishing naked, uh, which is a country boy thing, I think. Uh, and so from the country, I can appreciate, uh, you know, where he's coming from here. Uh, and then he puts his clothes on and then he jumps in the water, which if you're already naked, why not just jump in? I don't know. Jesus is there. I don't want to be naked with Jesus. It's just too much. So he's like, I got to put my clothes on and then I got to jump in and then I got to swim to Jesus and arrive to Jesus on the shoreline, sopping wet, right? And when he does, he sees that Jesus has built a fire, a fire, a very specific kind of fire to make breakfast over. Well, this fire that Jesus built was a charcoal fire, it says in John 21, a charcoal fire is a very specific word in Greek called anthrakia. That word only appears twice in the whole Bible. Once here in this story on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has built a fire for Peter to cook breakfast for him. And the other, the only other anthrakia in all of scripture is guess where? At the trial in that courtyard where Peter warmed himself and denied Jesus three times. That's the only other charcoal fire. Why did Jesus build a charcoal fire? Well, we know from, uh, science tells us that, that memory is, is, the, is directly connected more than any of the senses to your sense of smell. And every man in this room knows good and well that there's nothing that smells quite like a good charcoal fire smells. And so Jesus he could have made that fire out of anything, driftwood. He could have made it, he could have manifested it. He's, he's the son of God. He could have done anything, but he brought the charcoal to the beach and made it the charcoal fire just for Peter. Why? He is reconstructing the scene where it all fell apart just days before. He is bringing to mind the memory of Peter's worst 
ever moment. And the question is why? And I'm telling you, he did it to have a better conversation with Peter than Peter ever could have thought or imagined that Jesus would wanna have with him. Given what he had done, given how he had let Jesus down in the moment of truth, how he had abandoned the one who who had given him everything and called him the rock and put all of that hope in him. Like, how much shame was Peter carrying around? What kind of a conversation did Peter expect to have or deserve with Jesus? Jesus recreates this scene and then this happens. This is from John 21. And um, we'll start uh, about midway through the chapter. So John 21, verse 15, all right? When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Notice he calls him Simon, not Peter here, all right? Because Peter was the name of the disciple. He's not a disciple right now, okay? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied, down, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you to where you don't want to go. He said this so that the, to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter died on a cross like Jesus, but reportedly upside down because he didn't want to die. He didn't think himself worthy of dying just like Jesus had. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Those are some of the first words Jesus ever spoke to Peter back in the beginning of the gospel, follow me. He's saying it again here. After everything Simon Peter had done. Now, uh, some of you probably remember, um, but some of y'all have never heard this, I imagine. The way that this story reads in English is um, it does not do the real story justice at all. And I know it's a thing, it's like a trope for preachers to go, well, if you only knew the, what the real language says, if you only knew the original Greek or Hebrew, then, then that's where the real meaning, I know preachers do this all the time. I'm telling you, this is amazing. This is so obviously sort of legitimate to the text, but it's also such a, a game changer. Because while in English we have one word for love, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, they have at least four words for love. And all of them mean something, a different grade of love. So agape is obviously the highest form of love. It's godly love. It's unconditional, perfect love. Storgia is the love that a mommy and a daddy feel for their babies. Eros is the love that a mommy and daddy feel for each other while making their babies. And then you have phileo. Phileo which is the most uh, basic, really, kind of love. It's, I love you, man. I love you, bro. Love y'all. That kind of casual-ish kind of love. What you need to know from this story in John 21 is that when Jesus asked Simon the first time, Simon, do you love me? He said, Simon, me agapas, me agapas. Do you love me like I love you? 
Do you love me perfectly? Do you love me with agape? And do you know what Simon Peter said? He said, yes, you know that I love you, but you know what he said? He said, Lord, you know I phileo you. So Jesus said, do you love me with agape love? And Peter said, you know I love you, but with this lesser form of love. I love you, but not like you love me. I love you, but not enough. Obviously, you remember what I did at your trial. You know who I really am. I don't love you like you love me. That's patently clear. So it's a bittersweet thing. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, but. And it doesn't come through in English. The second time, the same thing happens. Jesus said, Peter, may agapas, you love me perfectly like I love you, Peter. And Simon Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you, but not like that. But then the third time, Jesus, in his mercy, said, Simon Peter, son of John, Mephileas, do you love me a little? Do you even love me that much? And that's when Simon got upset. And it's not because he thought Jesus didn't believe him. I've always thought Jesus' repetition made Simon Peter feel like he wasn't being heard or believed. That's not it. He got upset because his insufficiently forced Jesus to acquiesce to his lower standard of love. He brought Jesus down to his level and that upset him. Because why can't I love this man like he loves me? Now he has to come down to my level. And it made Simon Peter, I think in that moment, feel even worse. Simon, son of John, Mephileas, do you love me a little? And then after he composes himself, he says, Lord, you know, you know me, you know that I phileo you, I love you, but just, just a little, not enough. And then Jesus said, and first of all, let's pause and say, what would you expect to hear Jesus say at this point? All right, so let's say you're the one that denied knowing this man who just died for all of your sins a few days before. What would this scene he's created and this conversation he's orchestrated say about what's coming next. He's about to drop the hammer. Enjoy hell, young man. You know, like, like, what is he about to say to this man? I'm sure Peter was distraught. Peter, so, Mephileas, huh? You just love me a little. And Peter goes this, you know that I just love you a little, but not enough. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs and follow me. The mercy in this man, Jesus, Y'all, he didn't just forgive his sin. He reinstates this fool of a man to leadership in his church. He says, go and spread the word. Go tell the world. Go be the, the rock I've always seen inside of you. The rock on which I'll build my church. Go and do that, even if your love's not enough. Simon Peter, and in the last line, it says he said to Peter. So he's Peter again. He's like, Peter, Peter, listen. Your love doesn't always have to be enough. My love always is enough. That's how Jesus changes the conversation with us. He, he called Peter out of his shame and into discipleship. And he does that with all of us. If we'll let him, he'll change the game. He'll change the conversation we expect to have with God. We expect to get punished. We expect to be condemned. We expect to be called out on all of our stuff and bad decisions. And all he wants is for us to follow him again.
no matter how much we can honestly say we love him right now, he says, that's enough for now. Come on, we'll figure it out. What an amazing God we serve. This is how he changes conversations. Ryan and Gail saw this up close, you know, through, um, through the, the experience Jesus had with Gail's father on that curb years ago and through the conversations Gail's father had with his family after that through today, as we'll see. Their entire family's trajectory has been changed, not just in this life, but for all eternity. Let's look at uh, the second and final part of their story now. So once we started talking about having Olivia, that's when I realized we're not on the same page and I want to raise her to know who Jesus is and I can't do that without Ryan. So I first found a church for us to go to and it wasn't a good experience. I just felt like I was so far behind. It just was like not comfortable being there because I didn't feel like I fit in. And then someone had shared a story of Eric telling his story and I was super intrigued. And I was like, we're going this Sunday. I went to the first sermon and I was just like, okay, I, I think I can get behind this. It was more kind of diving into the facts of the Bible rather than just kind of talking up, I guess, existing already faith journey. It's almost like you needed the facts first. Like, why should I believe any of this? And then from that, I feel like your faith started to grow versus just saying like, you have to have blind faith to everything that we're telling you here. I don't know, it was just comforting knowing that I wasn't the only one who goes to church who doesn't have all the answers. And then Eric one day was talking about writing or praying for 10 minutes a day. And before I knew it, I was doing that every night, read, writing in my prayer journal and then reading the Bible. And here I am today. <laughs> I feel gratitude, just a lot more gratitude. And then because I can go back to see a prayer was answered and just feel really happy about that and just kind of show proof that, that Jesus is real. He's, he's answering prayers. It's just been such a great testament to see Ryan change um, and grow closer to God because I honestly didn't know if it would happen without a miracle. <laughs> it's just been a blessing finding the story and like having Ryan relate to people and seeing that that's what he needed was to relate to other people and hear other people's stories to start to really grow his faith and it's just been the coolest experience um, seeing it happen. So by the grace of God, Jesus saved Gail's father years ago on that curb in the aftermath of that accident and by Speaking through Gail's father, Gail came to faith in Christ. And through that experience, that transformed conversation, Gail changed the conversation with her husband, Ryan. And Ryan came to faith in Christ. This is how the Lord works with us, by changing one conversation at a time. I've talked for way too long. I'm almost out of time. I got to give you this very practical stuff here to, to try and change some of those conversations, even on your way home today. Some very easy things to keep in mind. First of all, pray first, always. 
Pray first about the people you will be in conversation with. Ask God, what does this person need to hear today? What should I say to them and how should I say it? Seek God's guidance before you take the conversation to a deeper place. Second, and I think just as important, is asking questions in conversation. Don't come with all the answers. Don't talk at people. Don't proof text everybody and beat them over the head with your religious rules. Ask questions. Hear someone's story. Be compassionate. Listen. And then repeat that as often as necessary before you start offering advice or answers and and all of that. Third, I think it's important that we make ourselves comfortable instead, um, vulnerable instead of comfortable. <laughs> so I got to talk, uh, be clear here. We're not supposed to be comfortable. We're supposed to be vulnerable. All right. And that means confessing our own sin in front of people we're going deeper with. Look, I'm a, I'm a mess. I've been in a darker place than you. You don't even know the mistakes I've made. You don't even know how I'm still searching for truth. I still have doubts. I still wrestle and struggle. I understand what it's like. So you can make yourself vulnerable. And and I think that really paves the way for some deeper conversations. And finally, of course, we want to grow to a place ourselves where we're comfortable bringing the conversation back to the Bible, back to the word of God, so that we're not one of those fools that Proverbs talks about who's just sharing our opinions all the time. Listen, my opinions and my moods and my feelings, they change on a minute-to-minute basis. I have found the word of God to be a timeless and true and trustworthy source of truth, way more trustworthy than my day-to-day feelings or opinions or politics. And so finding ways of tying every conversation as it goes deeper back to Jesus and back to the Bible. Listen, Jesus has always been in the business of changing conversations. He can change the conversations from something ordinary to something extraordinary in your own home in your own prayer life with him and in the conversations you have with friends and family and others in your spheres of influence, he can change it all if you let him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder today and this, uh, this call, this challenge you give us to go deeper in our conversations more often uh, and more of the time. God, we do wanna talk more about you than we talk about mundane things like the weather. We do wanna bring more of our conversations to that deeper place where we're seeing breakthroughs in our own faith and in the lives of others as well. We thank you for every opportunity you you give us to go deeper with you and with one another and, and for the change that those conversations bring, not only in this life, but for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name with grateful hearts, amen.